I invite you to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to jump into chapter 2 this morning. I greet you in the precious name of this Jesus that we've been singing about. It is the most incredible name I could ever offer to you and ever greet you in, and I hope you received that this morning. As you are turning in your Bible and preparing to study the Word of God together as a body of believers being built together, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone built on the foundation of the holy prophets and the apostles, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God to dwell by His Holy Spirit. And I trust that that's your intention, why you're here this morning. It's why you came. As you were doing that, I invite you to pause for a moment before we jump into the reading and studying of the Word. I pause for you to invite you to just stop for a moment, let your mind and your heart dwell on the reality of a God who is perfect in every way, high and lifted up, the creator of the universe, Everything is held together by him. Everything was created by him. He is perfect in light. He's actually unapproachable in his perfect light. And somehow you today sitting here, what are you like? You today sitting here in your humanity and in your, some of the things we talked about this morning that we men were wrestling with, that all of us have inside of us, by the way, not just men. Women, it's part of you too. The pride and the selfishness. And here we sit, marred by sin. And pause for a moment to think, how can it be that you deserve or you are allowed to sit here and sing songs of praise and expect them to be received and to study God's word and expect to hear from the Holy Spirit and expect to have anything other than utter destruction because of who you are? How is it that you can receive that? And the answer, my friends, is the incredible grace of God. The answer is the unbelievable mercy of the Heavenly Father who looks down at his creation and says, because I love you, I will make a way for you through my son, Jesus Christ. It gives you and I a correct perspective as we're going to undertake to study the Word of God, the precious, inspired, Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. It gives us proper perspective. I would tell you, it would have been good for you to think that before you walk into church this morning. It gives you proper perspective. I would, in fact, encourage you that every morning when you wake up, it might be the most appropriate thing that you could do because it will give you proper perspective for your day. How is it that you walk in the light of grace that you do? And what an amazing testimony and gift that God's grace truly is. More than anything, more than anything, you and I are in need of his, of his grace and his mercy. With that being said, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. It's a uh, long section, and we're not going to be able to cover all of it this morning. I intend to be in here at least this week and next week. Um, I think we'll get it in two weeks, but we'll see. Now... Paul writes, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. 
Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Lord, thank you so much for your text. Thank you for the letter you inspired Paul to write to these Thessalonian believers, believers that we do not know, believers who lived in such a vastly different environment than we did, such a vastly different culture than we did, and yet somehow through the thread of history, by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are bound together with them. We call them brothers and sisters, and we believe that someday together we will be worshiping you around your throne. So we... Just as you were instructing them, God, we ask that you instruct us this morning from your text. Without a doubt, God, if it's not always said, it's always in my head and heart. Without a doubt, we are unable, I am unable to teach effectively and we are unable to receive effectively what your word says unless your Holy Spirit is here and instructing us. For he is the one who reminds us of, and guides us into all truth. Reminds us of the words Jesus taught and guides us into all truth. So we want to allow you, we want to surrender before you, we want to lay ourselves before you this morning, inviting you to speak to us through your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul has, as we remember from the end of chapter 1, that whole text there, it's sort of part of his greeting and his opening in the end of chapter 1. It's, it's his opening uh, sort of, let, let's, let's, let's just extend my greetings and tell you what I think about you and pray for you. And now he's moving into a section that of, of, of instruction that he'd like to give. The reason maybe even for his letter. I think there's, an, there's a, a feeling inside of these words that are written down here that there's something he feels very strongly about and may in fact be the very reason why he wrote the letter. I called my message this morning, The Coming of Our Lord. Next week, we, as I said, we'll have the same text. We'll have the same title, most likely. And in fact, we'll have the same thrust. The thrust is in the very first verse. There's something he wants to communicate concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him. It's a subject that Paul addressed in his first letter. If you go back and read 1 Thessalonians, there's a, a couple of paragraphs given to the coming of the Lord Jesus and what's going to happen. Where the dead in Christ shall rise first and we'll be caught up together with him in the air. And when the day of the Lord comes, it'll be like a thief in the night, except that those who are the children of light will not be taken off guard. They'll understand it's like a woman who's going to give birth. Those are the kinds of things that Paul wrote about in his first letter. And here now he's following up. And I would tell you, there's a sense of of clarification at the very least. Wanting to clarify some things. Of maybe correction even. There's a sense of a bit of correction in these words. But I think maybe ultimately a sense of calming them. For they're stirred up in some way. They're, they're unsure about something. And we're going to hear what that is in just a bit. Now I want to say at the very beginning. Tucked away about in the middle of the text there. Is the little phrase where Paul says. Do you not remember that when I was still with you I told you these things. Which to me makes it clear that they, of course, have some more information than we do, right? Because they were there that day when Paul was with them, and he communicated to them personally, and now he's writing, reminding them of, them of some things, which means we don't have the full picture. 
I think it's, it's good for us just to kind of look at this text up front and say, well, maybe there's some question marks we might have about what means what, and maybe we want to dig into it, and maybe we're not going to get clarity there. Because Paul, I think, is not explaining completely everything because he's saying, remember, I told you this stuff when I was there. You, you already know it. I don't have to write it down. You already know it, which leaves us in the unfortunate place that we don't know it, which really bothers us because we really like to know things, don't we? I happen to think sometimes these kinds of things in Scripture are really good for us because they push our buttons because we want to know everything. We want to have it all figured out. And I think, quite frankly, sometimes the Lord looks and says, no, I want you to live by faith. You don't have to have it all figured out. You can learn to live obedient to me without having everything figured out. I might even go so far as to suggest to us that it's a bit of our pride that makes us think that we will follow you, Jesus, once the plan is made clear, once we understand how this is going to work out. I would suggest to us that's only me on the throne of my own heart instead of me getting off the throne and saying, Jesus, you're in charge. I don't have to know everything. I don't have to understand everything. I'll be obedient nonetheless. But there are some things we can jump into. And I gave you the overarching thrust of the text, and I'm going to give you the, the gist of Paul's message, what he really wanted to accomplish with both this message and next week's message. This is the same thing he wants to accomplish. It's the very next verse. He's saying, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken, not to be disturbed, shaken in mind, not to be alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter that seems to be coming from us about this subject, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And here we see a little bit revealed of what was stirring afoot with these Thessalonian believers. Somewhere, somehow, somebody was coming to them or they were picking up some information that made it seem like the day of the Lord had already come, that Christ had already returned. And of course, if you begin to hear that and you're sitting there and life is proceeding as normal, what do you begin to think? I'm in trouble, right? Because if Jesus came back and I didn't find out, that's not good news for me. And Paul says, listen, here's what I want you to know from what I'm writing to you. I don't want you to be shaken up. I don't want you to be alarmed. I don't want you to fret. I'm going to tell you very clearly, doesn't matter if someone came and said, the Holy Spirit told me. Doesn't matter if someone came and said, I have a word from the Lord. It doesn't matter if someone came and said, I saw this, or I am this, or this is unfolding. Doesn't matter if those things are happening. Doesn't matter if someone even, according to this, it looks like someone might have even written a letter to them, and, a, and, and I don't know if they forged a name, or somehow purported it to be from Paul himself. He says, listen, I want to make clear to you the truth of this matter about the day of the Lord coming and whether it will happen without your knowledge. Now, I decided for this text to go through, there was a couple of questions running through my mind as I, as I uh, uh, went through the text myself, and I thought maybe that's just a way to let us be led through the text, is to, is to just ask those questions out loud and to answer them from the text as best we can. So, the first question in my mind after this kind of statement is this question right here. How do we know that Christ has not come? How do we know Christ has not come? This, by the way, is a valid question. 
It's a valid question because Jesus in Matthew 24, which is a, uh, his discourse where he's speaking of things of the end of the world, Jesus says this kind of thing. He says, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And when that begins to happen, when people begin to pop up in various places, and here's the Christ, here's the Christ, he's come back. When that begins to happen, it will naturally lead those around and hearing those things to wonder, am I missing something? If, if, what if that is? What if that's it? Right? It's a valid question. How will we know that Christ has not come back? I don't know how you feel about these kinds of things. And I don't always know how I think about, feel about these kinds of things. But I'll make a statement here. As I was reading this verse uh, just again this morning uh, in preparation for, the te- for uh, preaching this morning as I was in my office and, and praying and, and reading back through my verses and just asking the Lord to, to sort of flesh out what, what he wanted to say there. Um, it struck me that, you know, I think we rightfully talk about being in the end times. I'll just say that. I think we rightfully talk about being in the end times. One thing that for me makes me say we're not, we're not, we're not on the precipice is I don't, I, at least maybe I'm naive to it or maybe I just don't hear it, but I don't hear a lot of this happening, at least around here. I don't have a lot of people that are coming and saying, or coming to me and saying, hey, this person here claims to be Christ. I hear a lot of false stuff. I hear a lot of deceptive stuff. I see a lot of the evidences of what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24 and Revelation talks about and Daniel talks about and Timothy talks about, or Paul writes to Timothy, I should put it that way. So I see a lot of that evidence, so I know we're there. But here's one of the things I haven't seen a lot of yet. Maybe it's happening. Maybe I'm I'm aware of it. I don't know. You can, of course, fill me in. It's a valid question. How do we know Christ hasn't come? Well, Paul says it pretty definitively as we go to the very next verse. He says, this is how you know. Let no one deceive you in any way. Let no one deceive you in any way. These are important words that are going to come out. They're going to set the stage for a lot of things we're going to wrestle with and dig into over the next, this, over today and next week. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So Paul gives two things that he says are going to happen before Christ returns. Two things that will be definitive markers before Christ returns. And he says them with definitive articles. In other words, the first thing that he says, unless the rebellion comes first. But notice, he doesn't just say, unless rebellion comes first. Listen, you know this as well as I do. Rebellion is all over the place, right? Rebellion is happening all the time. Rebellion has been happening since the very beginning, all through time. So it's not a question of, well, rebellion has to happen. It's happening all the time. But he gives a definite article there. He says, the rebellion. Now, that word rebellion is the word apostasia in Greek. It might sound pretty familiar because we have a word today that sounds almost identical to it. What is it? Apostasy. Apostasia means to defect from the truth. To defect from the truth. Now think about what that that word means. That's an important word in understanding what this text is going to talk about. Because that means that, that the word apostasy, apostasy can only apply to people who have known the truth or even received the truth and defect from it. So you don't call people uh, in apostasia who have never received Christ or never heard of Christ in any way. We're not talking about that. We're talking about people who have known and quite likely, if you're going to use the word defect, have received and aligned themselves under Jesus or under the truth at some point and then defect and then reject and then walk away. 
And Paul speaks of this, I think, with the word the in front of it, as if this is some kind of more major, more worldwide, greater event than what we've seen to date. A major defection of those who have in some way called themselves followers of Christ, walking away and denying him. And on the heels of that, I think they're connected, by the way. I think we're going to get into this next week, but I think they're really connected. On the heels of that, he says something about this man of lawlessness, that a man of lawlessness is revealed. Again, there's a great clue in the text. Lawlessness is all around us. If you see that, I think it's in verse 7. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We don't have to look very far to find lawlessness, right? We don't have to look far to find people who are rebelling or not obeying God's law. It's all over the place. In fact, we don't have to look that far to even find believers who call themselves that and are busy being lawless, right? We talked about that in our men's retreat about what false grace is, is when you believe that Jesus' grace covers your sin but doesn't actually change any, anything in what you do. You just keep on living in it. That's not grace. That's not God's grace. Thank you. So we see that already, right? But again, he uses a definitive term. Like there's a, there's, there's a specific person in mind that is the man of lawlessness. This leads me, um, uh, well, hold on, let me, let me stop there a little bit. I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna pay attention to the words there yet. This verse says that on that day, the rebellion comes, the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now again, this kind of language and words are very, um, what we would call apocalyptic in nature. Actually, the word re uh, revealed there in that verse, in verse three, is the word apocalypto. So the man of lawlessness will be apocalypto. That really just means the covering taken off. Literally, that's what the word two words. Calypto is a covering, and apo means off of or away from. So it literally means the cover's taken off. So he's revealed. That's what apocalypse means, by the way. By the way, it's the same word used in many places when it talks about the return of Christ. That Jesus will be apocalypto, will be revealed. Now, in apocalyptic literature, we often find three words that are used. All three words, by the way, are present in this text. The first word is the word parousia, which is the word coming. It's the very, very first phrase in this, uh, in this section, this chapter. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the word parousia. In this particular text, every time Paul is talking about Jesus, he talks about coming. Every time he's talking about the man of lawlessness, he uses the word apocalypto, revelation. Now, maybe there's nothing significant about that, although I will tell you the word coming is more about dwelling and drawing near. That's what Jesus is doing. And the man of lawlessness will be revealed, uncovered. The third word that's often used in this kind of uh, end times kind of stuff actually shows up in verse 9. I'm sorry, it's in verse 8. Actually, in verse 8, all three words are used together. But this is the word epiphania, which simply means that it's a, it's a word that means appearance or coming to light, coming to light. So it says that uh, Jesus will kill this uh, man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth. Um, I lost the place. And bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. He actually uses both words uh, consecutively. That's just a bunch of, you know, nerded history there or, or word stuff there for you to know. But I want you to know, this is a text that's concerned with the end times. All three of those words are the words consistently used in every text you're going to find about end times in scriptures. Clearly not in the Old Testament in its original Hebrew, but in the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, that's what you're going to find, those words. The man of lawlessness will be revealed, will be uncovered. That leads me to the next question that I want to ask, that maybe you might be asking. What is meant by man of lawlessness? 
What is this phrase about? Who is this person we're talking about? What is meant by man of lawlessness? Now, this person is spoken of in other texts in Scripture. I don't know if you know this or not, but he's spoken of in other texts. It's not just in Thessalonians where Paul refers one time to this man of lawlessness, and it's the only time he shows up in Scripture. In fact, he's spoken about, uh, well, whoops, I was going to put that verse up first. Uh, let me go to this verse, and, or this screen, I'll come back to that screen. He's spoken about in Daniel chapter 7 and in Revelation 13, and in both of those places, he's identified as a beast. If you go back and read Daniel chapter 7, Daniel's talking about end times, and he refers to this beast. He tries to describe this beast and what he does. The language, the things he does, you're going to find line up exactly with the things that Paul is talking about. And in Revelation 13, the exact same way, the revelation, the apocalypsis, the revelation that John has, the revealing, the uncovering of what's happening at the end uh, that John has, he describes a beast as well who does the same thing. So in both those cases, he's called a beast. It's a representation of what this man is going to be like. In Matthew 24 and in Mark 13, which are parallel passages of Jesus' discourse toward the end of his life about the end times, he is called the abomination of desolation. This man, this person is called the abomination of desolation. In 1 John, in, those, in that letter there, John refers several times to Antichrist. And again, he does the same thing Paul does here. He says, there's all kinds of Antichrists already here. Those who oppose Jesus. But there is an Antichrist singular that's coming now let me back up a verse because i want to flesh in uh what paul says about this man of lawlessness who is this man of lawlessness well he actually wrote a nice uh, description of him he's a man who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship and he takes his seat in the temple of god proclaiming himself to be god now those are some serious words I hope you understand this morning the seriousness of those words. I hope you're able to draw a parallel, just a little step outside of the text to a little application. But I hope you're able to draw a little parallel or a little string tied to those words and what happens on a micro scale in all of us. I used the phrase earlier about me being on the throne and me getting off the throne and Jesus getting on the throne in my life, in my heart, in who I am. It's the same kind of language. It's on a micro scale, all of us face the same battle. Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to be the king of your heart, of your life? Will it be you? Will it be yourself? Will it be the world or the enemy? You could put those things in there too. Or will it be Jesus? But this is on an entirely different scale. This is on a macro scale. This is someone who doesn't just wrestle with it inside, but is here fully convinced that they are God. Fully convinced that this is their position and their right and where they should be. And fully convinced that they can and will do everything they can to put themselves in that position. And fully arrayed, as we're going to read here in a bit, with all kinds of power to make that come to pass. Look at the all-inclusive language there. He will oppose and exalt himself, he'll come against and exalt himself against every so-called God, every other God that's out there, of which there are hundreds, thousands, perhaps I could say even millions. Every other God there and every other object of worship, he is not satisfied with just being one among many, 
but will say he is the only one. He will attempt, or will even in fact, take his seat in the very dwelling place of God. Now here's another clue. Where is the temple of God? Where is the temple of God? If you read the book of uh, Ephesians, if you recall the words I just said, unknowingly, by the way, I did not plan this, so it's really cool that kind of happened. Thank you, Lord. But if you, the words I just referred to at the beginning when I walked up here and said some off-the-cuff comments, in Ephesians, he talks about very clearly that we are being built together into a building, a dwelling place for God by his spirit. The church is the temple of God. He will take his seat in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God. Do you see some things coming together? Themes like apostasy, defecting from the truth, people who have called themselves believers falling away, and the uncovering of one who exalts himself above everything and says, I will not stop until I am recognized as God himself. Now here's what we need to make clear. Though he will claim to be God, Paul makes it clear that his coming is by the activity of Satan. Though he will claim to be God, Paul makes it clear that the coming of this lawless one is by the activity of Satan from the other direction. And in fact, I would tell you, is taking a play right from Satan, right? He's not, this is not Satan, but it's someone so closely tied to him that they're going to be almost indistinguishable, I believe. And taking a play right out of it. If you would, excuse me, if you read in the Old Testament a few times, it happens in Ezekiel and Isaiah. I'm going to give you the reference from Isaiah. But a few times, God speaks through his prophet, Isaiah in this case, and he says, I have a word. And it comes out as if it's speaking of an earthly man, an earthly king. But most scholars agree that it goes beyond that to the, to the king behind that real human person. And speaking of Satan or the devil himself. And he says this about him. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high. This is what scripture indicates is the cause of Satan's fall, is that he exalted himself to the place of God. Once again, it's how you and I should see in a very applicable level, at a very real, like, take this home, rubber meets the road kind of level. This is the micro battle we find ourselves in all the time. Will you make yourself God or will you let God be God in your life? But this is the man who takes the plan, play right from Satan because he, his coming is by the activity of Satan and he will presume to be God. Now, at this point, you might be asking the question that I was asking myself. If here comes somebody who is destroying everything else, who's walking the temple and who's claiming to be God, who's opposing God, in fact, he's setting himself up against God, how... Will this son of destruction be able to mislead so many people? I mean, look at the phrase, son of destruction. Would you follow after someone who's the son of destruction? Are you interested in destruction? Are you interested in life? Well, that's the phrase Paul gives to him because that's the result of what's going to happen. 
But here I think is the, the digging into it because the answer to that question is that when he comes and though he's opposing God, I believe given the, the structure of this text, the words in this text, he will not come overtly opposing God. He will come using deception. If he comes by the activity of Satan, what is Satan's activity like? Satan, Jesus said, is the father of lies. So someone coming by the activity of Satan is not going to come and say, listen, guys, I'm here to oppose the God of heaven and get you to follow me instead of him. Is he? He's going to come by deception. He's going to come as if he were helping you follow God better. And then he will instead be exalting himself into that place. I think this is the pattern you're going to see because the word reveal means it's already happening, but at one point, all of a sudden, it's like whoosh, cover taken off, and now we see what's really happening. Now we see the real person. Now we see the real agenda. Now we see what's actually being driven towards. Paul says here, the answer to that question of how is he going to mislead so many? Well, he will come with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Now, did you catch did you catch that that phrase, I broke it up, I put it in two different slides, but did you catch that phrase was connected? His coming is by the activity of Satan with all power, false signs, and wonders. In other words, Satan is able to do wonders and signs and has great amount of power. Not authentic ones, or at least I should say they're misleading. They're drawing you away. They're not taking you to God. They're drawing you away from God. But he's able to. Now, let me make some, something clear. From my reading of the Bible, it's very clear that God's message of the gospel was authenticated by signs and wonders power. You read Acts, it's true there. The writer of Hebrews reflects back on those events and things that were happening, and he says the very same words, that God spoke through his prophets, through the, through the apostles in that time, and he confirmed it with signs and wonders. So let me be clear about that. I would tell you, you must believe that if you can believe there's false ones, because you can't counterfeit something that isn't there, right? I think that's a true statement. You can't counterfeit something that isn't real. However, the reality of it presents the opportunity for counterfeiting. And in this text, Paul says, listen, when the man of lawlessness comes, he's coming by the activity of Satan, and he's going to come with power, false signs, false wonders, wicked deceptions. Man, how are you feeling right now? If it's not very fun to listen to, think about being on this side and realizing what you have to, message you have to give to your congregation. This is difficult stuff. I remind you, Paul's intention is not to scare or bring fear or alarm. In fact, it's the exact opposite. He says, I don't want you to be alarmed. I don't want you to be shaken. I don't want you to be worried. You will know before Jesus comes back, there will be a great falling away and there will be a revelation of one who is completely opposing God. Up to this point, he's been coming with power. He will still have power at that point too. And with signs and wonders, but the revelation, I think, will make it clear where his heart really lies, what he's really after. When he's coming, these are the things that will be there, a wicked deception. This leaves us feeling a little unsure. 
And again, Paul is not just saying things by himself. Jesus said these same words in that same text, Matthew 24. He says, for false Christ, false prophets, they will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible, even the elect. These are the kinds of phrases. I think it's when Paul writes to Timothy, or maybe it's Peter, I forget which one it is exactly. These are the kinds of serious phrases when he writes these things, and it comes with serious kinds of things, right? Like, if God had not shortened those days, even the elect might have been drawn away. Rather than strike fear in our hearts, however, I think there's also a room here for us to look at these phrases and say, listen, this is teaching us something. This is teaching us how to also protect ourselves, how to stand firm, and what to be engaged in and where to be at so that we are not taken by these false signs and wonders. Maybe I should just make that clear. I know I, dab I, I dabbed at it. I Maybe I should just make it clear. Please, let's not be in the place where everything that appears or is, in fact, a supernatural event we automatically attribute to God because it doesn't work that way. Satan is an angelic being. He's a, he's a spiritual being. All of his henchmen are. Angels are. Anything that happens outside of natural human kinds of things is a supernatural event, and it does not mean it's God. That's why John, when he's talking about the Antichrist, says we should test the spirits, whether they be from God, whether they confess Jesus Christ as, as having come in the flesh. There's two phrases I want to bring to you that are in this text here. It's the end of verse 10, and it's the end of verse 12. These people who are being deceived, and I believe it's the people who are falling away, are apostatizing, if I can use that word. These people, it says, Paul says, refused to love the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, in both of these phrases, they're, the way they're worded, the words that are present, the way it comes out, in both of those phrases, I think I can make a really good case that he's referring to people who have been exposed to the truth and chose to reject it, who knew what the truth was and chose to say no to it, who knew how they should live their lives and chose to live unrighteously because they took pleasure in that. We might say people who wanted to be saved by Jesus, but weren't willing to yield lordship to him. People who began to follow Jesus, but when life became tough, or pressures came, or when persecution came, all those things that Jesus talked about in the types of soil as the seed went out, when those things came, they fell away. They gave up. They didn't want to have the truth change them. They refused to love the truth. You know, he didn't say they didn't know the truth. He didn't say even that they rejected the truth, which I think would even say something different yet. But they refused to love it. Here's a little hint. If you want to be protected from the deception of Satan, then you should love the truth. These, it says, in fact, it's phrased that God sent them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Now, let me just make a comment about that. Again, I don't think we should read in these verses that God, in his grand sovereignty, decided that a few people or some people or a whole bunch of people, I don't know how big a group you think this is, but that they just had no choice. God decided he was going to send a delusion and they were just going to have no chance. 
I think the phrasing in the end of verse 10 and the phrasing in the end of verse 12, finishing the sentence I just started reading, gives us the idea that they had access, they were taught, they did know what the right thing to do was and chose to reject it. And then you read Romans chapter 1 and it's fleshed out because then God says, okay, if you want that, I will, I will, I will give it to you. And God sends them a delusion, this man of lawlessness, to, in order to condemn those who didn't believe, and again, there's another clue. I didn't read that, didn't put the phrase up there, but that means have faith in the truth. Who did not have faith in the truth, but instead had pleasure in unrighteousness. Once again, simple, direct little hint. If you want to protect yourself from the uh, deception that Satan wants to work in our hearts all the time, but on a grand scale as we come to the coming back, the return of Jesus Christ, if you want to protect yourself, then put yourself in a place where you put faith in that truth that you are growing to love and you take no pleasure in unrighteousness. You know, this isn't as hard as we make it out to be sometimes. Because you and I, if we're willing to look at ourselves very clearly and, and honestly, you and I can tell, do we delight in unrighteousness? Do we love to do the things that are, we know are against God? Does it somehow bring a secret like, ah, oh, I kind of want that still? And I would tell you, then that means you better start praying. You better start crying out to God. You better start asking him to rip that you out of you to put him inside of you. The reality is Paul began his letter, and I love how the Holy Spirit does things like this. The reality is Paul began his letter, and he snuck in this little tiny thing about the seed of faith. Remember that very first message I, of, this, of 2 Thessalonians, I entitled The Seed of Faith. There's this little seed of faith that grows up and sprouts. But listen, the reality is that the fruit that comes out of a tree is the, determined by the, the seed that's planted under the ground, right? You understand that. When you plant this kind of seed, you're going to get this kind of plant producing this kind of fruit. So the question is, which seed is inside of you? Which root is there? Is it yourself or is it Jesus? The fruit is going to be there. If, if this brings us to a place where we are like shaking in our boots and are knocking our knees together and we're living in fear that we might, there's this powerful being that when Satan sends us delusion and there's this great falling away that, oh, I might be taking part of this. I don't know. I'm so worried about it. If we find ourselves there, the comfort, the encouragement, the exhortation to us is to find ourselves being concerned about the seed and the root that's inside of us and the growth that comes out of that. To continue yielding ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the teaching of his word, and watch the fruit outwardly is coming out because that's determining what seed's really inside of there, right? Am I right about that? Do you feel that this morning? Do you understand that this morning? This, I believe, is the gospel truth for you. This is not meant to make you afraid. In fact, it's the opposite. It's meant to reassure you, and I want to give those things to you as encouragements. If you will love the truth, if you will place your faith in the truth of the gospel read here, and you will dig in, allow that seed to be planted, and ask the Lord Jesus to grow it in your life, and take honest assessments of the fruit that comes out of your life, you can find yourself standing strong and firm when the deception comes, even as it's coming around us already. I didn't even point out to you. Do you remember last week? I remember last week. We had a great week last week. We got to baptize two young people. And we read these verses of this powerful prayer that we prayed for 
Grace and for Elena. That we're praying for each other. And that prayer, in that prayer it says, we're asking that God would make you worthy of his calling and that he may fulfill every resolve for good. Remember that phrase? Every resolve for good. You know that word resolve is the Greek word eudakia, which means to speak well of good, to think well of good. It's actually the same word used in this phrase I have right up here, those who had pleasure in unrighteousness. In other words, he's setting up the exact opposite side. If you, are, if you are desiring and you speak well and you think well of good, that puts you in one category. If you have desire, you speak well and you long for it and, and take pleasure in unrighteousness, that puts you in an entirely different category. I might propose to you, it's going to expose my theology, but I might propose to you that you have a choice about that. You have a choice about that. You can decide which, one, which camp you want to be in. I would further encourage you to go read, I think it's Luke chapter 14. I should have looked this up. I didn't even think I was going to say this, but I'll just quickly flip through. I don't want to give you wrong reference. Yeah, Luke chapter 14. Read Luke chapter 14, verse 25 through 32, 33. If you're, talk, if you're wrestling with a choice, read those verses, because in those verses, Jesus is actually going to encourage you that you should count the cost, because you have a choice. And I will tell you there's cost to both sides of, of this thing. There's a great cost to receiving the seed of Jesus inside of you. It's costing you yourself, actually, death to yourself, denying yourself, taking up your cross. It's costing you all kinds of things that, humanly speaking, we don't think are very fun. I can also tell you that if you're gonna count the cost, you should count the entire cost because there's also a great cost to not receiving Jesus. In fact, I would let you or encourage you to let your mind fully reflect and run down that road of what the cost will be if you say no to Jesus, if you take pleasure in unrighteousness, if you know the truth, but you don't grow to love the truth. There's a great cost to that. Do you remember when we read Zephaniah? Do you remember when we studied Zephaniah? Do you remember the picture I had? I don't know what you connect with that, but you remember the picture I had of this barn out in the field and these giant clouds rolling toward them, right? Because Zephaniah is a message of the day of the Lord. And on that context and what he says there, the day of the Lord makes it pretty clear it's not going to be a fun day for those who don't know Christ. But it's not just about a day, right? Because something's going to happen after that day. Some reality is going to take place after that day. And it's that reality, I believe, that you should put in your bucket as you're weighing and counting the cost of receiving Jesus. My prayer, as it always is, my exhortation, my invitation, as it always is, as if you are considering that this morning, that today would be the day if you've not ever decided that the cost of not following Jesus is so far greater, infinitely greater than the cost of following Jesus, and today would be the day that you would surrender and say, it's time to get me off the throne. Or perhaps I could phrase it this way. Today would be a great day in light of these verses. We're going to dig into more things next week. But in light of these verses, today would be a great day to recognize at the honest reflection of the Holy Spirit working inside of me or you, a great day to recognize that maybe I don't love or trust the truth as much as I need to. But I want to be ready and prepared. I want to be the servant waiting for the master when he comes back, doing what he's asked him to do. So today would be a great day to, again, look to the Lord Jesus and say, I want to get all of me off the throne and put you on. God, in these moments where we come to close 
our services, there are always moments when you give us opportunity to respond. Sometimes we talk about it openly, sometimes we don't. But no matter which way it is, these closing moments are always here for us to respond to what you have taught us through your word this morning. This morning is one of those times, Father, that I believe you want us to be very open about the need to respond appropriately to the words you've shared with us. Lord, I don't know what that's going to look like. I trust your Holy Spirit this morning, God, to uh, lead us in proper response to what you are saying to each of us and applying to each of us. Maybe that means walking down the aisle this morning and coming up front here and just declaring in front of our brothers and sisters that I know I need Jesus and I want to give more of myself to him. I need to get more of myself off, off the throne because I want to love the truth. I want to uh, have trust in the truth of the gospel to change me, to make me a new person. I don't want to love things of unrighteousness or be approved of them or speak well of them. And in any of those things that are in my life currently, I want to get rid of them by God's grace. Maybe that's the response needed. Maybe it's to fall to our knees where we're at. Maybe it's to walk out of the room. Maybe it's simply to just have a conversation with you. And Father, I feel strong enough about it that I want to just be quiet for a moment so that I'm not talking so that you can talk more clearly. Without a doubt, Heavenly Father, these days that are spoken of in this text are in many ways great and fearful days. To even think about what the environment around us must be like when these kind of things take place is enough to cause us anxiety and worry. But Lord, you have called us for a reason you have allowed us to be born into the, 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 the pages of time in this very moment, and we do not believe you make mistakes. And so we look to you, and instead of being afraid or instead of crying out with fear or anxiety, instead of being stirred or shaken, we look to you and say, Lord, I need you desperately. I will not stand against the wiles of Satan on my own. I've already shown that. I've already shown that many times on a small scale in my life when I allow him to lead me away, when my flesh is allowed to take the lead. I don't want that. I want you, Jesus, to be Lord of my life. I want the truth presented in Scripture that you can and, in fact, have forgiven all the sins of all mankind through Jesus' shed blood, and you broke the power of sin when he came out of that grave, and he went back home to you interceding at your right hand for all of us and is coming back to receive us someday. I want that truth to be the love, the affection, to have the adoration of my being and the pursuit of my mind and my heart. In such a way that I will lay down my will, I will get rid of myself, I will deny myself, I will lay myself down so that I can serve you. I can make myself a living sacrifice to you, holy and pleasing, for this is my spiritual act of worship. 
that I may see myself and long, not for unrighteousness, but to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed through the renewing of my mind, so that I may know what your good, perfect, and pleasing will is for me, for us. Oh, Jesus, thank you that you have provided a hiding place for me, for us. Thank you that so many things can be shaken in this world, including our own minds and hearts about events around us. But one thing cannot be shaken, and that is you. And in fact, you yourself say that you will yet once more shake all things that can be shaken so that what cannot be shaken remains. We run to you, Father. We cry out to you. Have mercy on me. May your grace not only forgive my sins, not only accept me into your family as a son, but may your grace keep me from sinning. Help me to walk righteously before you. Thank you. We love you, Father, only because you first loved us, because you taught us what love really is. And we look to you for continuing help in how to truly show that we love you by loving each other, serving each other. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.